Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... From an international human rights perspective, these children deserve the best possible care. Not adequate care, not enough, but the best, just like every other child in Australia. A new report by Harvard University highlights poor health standards for young people in detention centres. Also... Not sleeping enough puts people at an increased risk of particular health conditions and it can also as well exacerbate a lot of other health conditions. Over a third of the population is not getting the recommended amount of sleep, a Flinders University study finds. And later today... You look at different research and then you look at the figures that are out there and the amount of content that people are going to be looking at that has been computer-generated in years to come is going to be obviously the vast majority. We take a look at the future of journalism, with the rise of generative AI being used in newsrooms. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, today is the final day of consultation for proposed seismic blasting in the Otway Basin on the southwest coast of Victoria. Seismic blasting is the first step in offshore oil and gas exploration under the ocean floor. And this is one of three proposals being considered to conduct seismic blasting in the area, put forward by multinational CGG. The proposals have been met with significant concern within the local community. The Wires contributor from 3CR, Judith Poppard, reports. At this stage, we don't know whether the environment plan for TGS or ConocoPhillips Australia, have received final approval. The environment plan for Regia's CGG is still out for community comment. But people who live and work along the coast, and First Peoples, whose country it is, are determined to stop it. And that's where the Great Ocean Rescue Tour comes in. Two of the organisers joined me, Lisa Deppola, who's the founder of Ocean, the Otway Coastal Environment Action Network, and Mitch Pope. These blasts, they have to be so loud to penetrate up to 20 kilometres below the seabed. So they're measured to be 250 decibels loud. They're known to kill all zooplankton and krill within a 1.2 kilometre radius. They haven't tested outside that boundary. The impacts to whales hearing can be devastating and all forms of other marine life as well. So the impacts on our ocean, but exploring for new gas in the middle of a climate crisis, we don't want new gas as well. The impact of new gas on the climate will be devastating. Lisa, you came up with the idea of the Great Ocean Rescue Tour. We want to raise awareness of seismic blasting amongst people beyond those just living along the coastline. We wanted to raise the issue with people that were coming to the coast for holidays. And January is such a busy time down here. The place just explodes with tourists. How did they respond when they saw you out in the streets? Most people were flabbergasted. I did not meet one person who thought seismic blasting was a good idea. This really is an issue that transcends political beliefs, whether you're lefty or righty or a greenie. Everybody 
thinks this is a pretty bad idea. We had people writing letters to MPs. We've had a survey that we've created. We've gotten heaps of responses for our survey. What was the survey about? We created a survey wanting to find out what the community thinks about seismic blasting and these new gas development projects. Still got our survey open. Really gained so much support from all of the communities along the Great Ocean Road. We ran events all the way down to Portland. So that whole sort of southwest coastline, raising the awareness, getting the media attention and giving people something to do. At the moment, if you're a relevant person, if you're registered as a relevant person, which is anybody who's put in a submission, we still have the opportunity to fire off questions or new issues that may be raised. And we'll be doing that to stall it as long as we can. So this is the TGS one we're talking about here. Correct. At the moment, the proposal by CGG to seismic blast an area it's a bit smaller than the other proposal, but it's in very close to the coast. It's only 12 kilometres off the coast of Port Ferry. That's open for public consultation at the moment. There's a 30-day period, and that period finishes on the 26th of February. I need to tell you, Judith, that this is a 3,330-page document, and it is heavy reading. And the Australian people get 30 days to comment on that. That's 100 pages a day of really heavy reading for a month. It's totally slanted in the favour of the gas and oil companies. Another group taking a close interest in these proposals for seismic blasting in the Otway Basin is the Southwest Coast Scientific Group of the Clean Ocean Foundation. They've examined the environment plan submitted to the National Regulator by TGS and ConocoPhillips Australia and recommended that both be rejected. And they're currently preparing their response to the Regia CGG environment plan. I caught up with Associate Professor Laurie Lawrenson, a marine biologist and member of the Southwest Coast Scientific Group, to find out more. One of the things that I had a much closer look at in the more recent application was everybody should not be looking at each of these projects in isolation from other projects. Every one of these projects has a footprint. That total area combined, you've got three notionally different organizations doing some sort of seismic survey work, constitutes an area that's the equivalent of the size of Tasmania. Is there overlap? So are we getting the same area being blasted over and over again? The different projects are mostly adjacent to each other. But if you look at these types of surveys from 2018 through to the proposed ones coming through now, there is no time for the ecosystem to recover from impacts of these types of projects. It doesn't get a break. It's continuous. Marine biologist and associate professor Laurie Lawrenson there, speaking with 3CR's Judith Poppard. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. A new report released by Harvard University highlights poor health standards for young people in detention centres. Children in detention are likely to have greater health needs like mental illness, substance abuse and complex trauma. 
The report includes research from youth detention centres in Western Australia and indicates a way to go to ensure better coordinated, high-quality health care. The WISE contributor from RTRFM Chris Wielden asked head of the Justice Health Group at Curtin University and co-author of the report, Professor Stuart Kinner, about how bad the problem is in WA. Well, there's a few different problems that we could talk about here. The first problem is the, the health needs of children in youth detention. And we know that children in detention in WA, just like elsewhere in Australia and in many parts of the world, have really significant health needs. Some of your listeners may have heard about the Banksy Hill study that the Telephone Kids Institute led a number of years ago showing an incredibly high rate of neurodevelopmental disability, especially FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So that's just one of the concerns. Most kids in youth detention have more than one significant health problem and those health problems interact with each other. So it's a very medically health-wise complex group of young people who really need support. How well are we doing in meeting those needs? That is unfortunately a bit of a black box. Uh, in some parts of the world, there is greater transparency around the quality of healthcare in youth detention. In Australia, we're very lucky that the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare routinely reports on healthcare in prisons around the country. Unfortunately, we don't yet have anything comparable for youth detention. So the short answer in terms of how well we're doing in Western Australia is that we don't know. So when we talk about standards, what is the base level of a child in detention that has these health requirements? Is it a regular visit to doctors? Is it a regular visit to psychiatrists? What is the base level? Sure. Look, the short answer to that question is that children in detention should get the same. So we have this idea of this thing called the principle of equivalence. So people in custody should get the same that they get in the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the report, we point out that Australia, like nearly every country in the world, except for the US and one other country, has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And what that signs us up to is committing to every child having the right to the highest attainable standard of health. So children in detention, just like every other child in Australia, have the right to the highest attainable standard of health. The problem is... Subsequent to that, um, the Committee on the Rights of the Child in the UN uh, wrote another document called General Comment 24, where they downgraded that and said uh, children should get adequate medical care. And so really, from an international human rights perspective, that's a key point we're making. These children deserve the best possible care, not adequate care, not enough but the best, just like every other child in Australia. So so just to my naivety kicks in a little bit here on how the health system works, mm. in, in terms of that, does that mean that um, if a child needs to go and, and visit a doctor while in, in detention, do the parents of that child have to pay that gap or the, the in-between, or is that picked up by the detention centre, I guess? Yeah, look, our states and territories cover health care in youth detention, yeah. so, and how that's done is different in different parts of the country. Uh, internationally, the WHO has for more than a decade now recommended that healthcare in custody be, be delivered by Department of Health. Sounds obvious, mm. but in a number of places, including Western Australia, that healthcare is being delivered by Department of Justice. Right. Now, again, this is not to have a go at the people delivering healthcare through the Department of Justice, but there's an inherent conflict there between justice and health. Yeah. Um, and so right now, the WA Department of Justice is paying for all of the health care for children in youth detention. 
when when we look at the the cycle of detention, how important is it that when they're there, they're cared for and looked after so that they don't come back, so that there isn't this cycle of consistently coming back? It's absolutely critical, of course. So, look, you know, the children who go to detention, uh, we're not going to fix any of the issues that led to them being in detention during their time in detention. The average time in youth detention in Australia is eight days. We had last financial year 4,350 kids go through youth detention. We're not going to change the life trajectories of young people who've been traumatised, marginalised and have significant mental health and substance use and health needs in eight days. No. What we can do is identify those issues and make sure that when they do return to the community, we can finally start giving them the support that we need. And unfortunately, we're not achieving that at the moment either. That was Professor Stuart Kinner from Curtin University there, speaking with RTRFM's Chris Wielden. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Armadale on Tune FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. New research finds over a third of the population isn't getting the recommended amount of sleep. The study done by Flinders University also found getting fewer than six hours of sleep can be a contributing factor to a range of cardiovascular diseases and obesity. National Radio News reporter Remy Norton spoke to research fellow from Flinders University, Dr Hannah Scott, to hear more about the study's results. We looked at the sleep of about 68,000 people who used an under-mattress sleep sensor to record their sleep every night. And what we found is that almost a third of people were not meeting the recommended sleep duration range consistently. So that means that they weren't sleeping between seven and nine hours per night consistently. And what were the what are some of the physiological disadvantages to not getting enough sleep? So we know that sleeping seven to nine hours a night for most people is absolutely crucial uh, to support their health and longevity. We know that uh, not sleeping enough puts people at an increased risk of particular health conditions, also simply of feeling really tired and fatigued and unmotivated during the day. And it can also as well exacerbate a lot of other health conditions. So if people have anxiety or depression or uh, chronic pain, for example, then not sleeping enough can actually exacerbate those conditions as well. So it really just shows that routinely getting enough sleep is absolutely critical for our health. And from that research, you found females had a longer sleep duration than males. Why is that? Yeah, so we did find that females tended to sleep a little bit longer than males uh, and that's pretty consistent uh, in other studies as well that it might be the case that women need a little bit more sleep than men. But having said that though, it's quite variable people's individual sleep requirements so it's actually more important that people feel like they're sleeping enough 
during the day and that they're getting enough restorative sleep. And it might mean that uh, women need to sleep a bit more, but on the whole, it's more that most people need at least seven hours a night to feel rested. So for people sleeping less than six hours, how does that increase their mortality rate? Yeah, so there is evidence to show that uh, sleep duration is linked to mortality rates in that if people who have less than six hours of, or report sleeping less than six hours a night do have um, higher mortality risk than individuals who get at least seven hours a night. We're unable to confirm that in this current study, though, because we don't have that mortality risk data. Uh, but what we do know is that there is a significant proportion of the global population who just really aren't meeting those recommended sleep duration ranges frequently enough. And it is quite likely that that will mean they're not feeling uh, or functioning well during the day. And it could put them at higher risk of certain health conditions. And what are those certain health conditions? So it, it really does vary. There's a, a multiple health conditions that are associated with short sleep. Uh, so there is previous research to show that things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and lots of other mental health conditions as well, depression, anxiety, for example, are associated with short sleep. We don't know for sure what the causal mechanism is there. So we can't really say for certain that those health conditions are caused by a lack of sleep. But certainly the evidence to date would suggest that um, if people were sleeping enough, it's very likely that those health conditions would at least be somewhat alleviated by getting enough sleep. Okay, interesting. I know you said that you don't know exactly what causes it, but how did you then find out that diabetes and cardiovascular disease was maybe yes. increased by lack of sleep? That previous research uh, has been done in epidemiological studies where they take large samples of people and they follow them for a long time. And what they're able to do is they're able to look at what their sleep is like at a particular time point and then assess what their um, health conditions and, uh, and mortality, their longevity is like at later time points. And so because of that kind of research, we can't categorically conclude that not getting enough sleep causes those health conditions. But what we do know from wealth of research in this area is that the two are quite strongly associated. So that means that people who have these health conditions later in life, they tend to show pretty poor sleep in tandem, whether it's the sleep that's causing those health conditions or perhaps those health conditions might also be in some respects affecting their sleep um, or maybe there's another factor which is affecting both their sleep and their health. Dr Hannah Scott from Flinders University there, ending the report by National Radio News' Remy Norton. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. The 
rise of generative AI technology in newsrooms across the country is raising questions regarding the future of the Australian journalism industry. So how are news outlets adapting? And should aspiring journalists feel wary or optimistic when it comes to AI? The Wires' Tony Pankaluik spoke with Dr Anne Kruger, lecturer in journalism and strategic communications at the University of Queensland, to find out more about the use of AI in Australian newsrooms. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. So you start with things looking at non-generative AI. You can look at text analysis and that text analysis will look at and recognise different characters. And there's some great tools, even audio transcription. And I know certainly in the world of fact-checking, there's a organisation overseas in the UK called Full Fact and they are beta testing these sorts of tools to help fact-checkers. It'll not only transcribe videos and audio, but it'll actually try to pick out certain points from there that the journalist might want to look into later, like some claims or something. So it saves the journalist time that they can actually find and discover what's potentially problematic and what do they then need to go and investigate further. There's a lot that's around and it's being developed. I mean, we've always had web and social media scrapers that are helping journalists as well. When you ask about generative AI, now this, I think, is where a lot of editors are proceeding with caution. So you've got tools that can help. I mean, you could use generative AI, for example, to help with summaries. There's a bit of experimenting going on at the moment with Australian newsrooms where they might use it to give them some topic ideas and things like that, but they're just experimenting with that sort of thing, generating some ideas, but not actually generating, although it's possible, but not actually generating the editorial content with a lot of the experiments that we're seeing per se. In particular with Australia, I want to ask you the differences between the regional media organisations and the metro capital city organisations with news. Is there really a difference in the penetration of AI or is it pretty much the same across the board because communication, everything's all globalised, technology just reaches out really quickly. So I just want to know if there is like a contrast in the Australian regional media organisations like the small country newspaper organisations or radio versus big organisations in Sydney, Melbourne, etc. Yeah, I think definitely your larger organisations have the advantage here because they are larger institutions. They just have that critical mass, I suppose, of funds and technology. And I'm not meaning that there's a lot of money going around at all for anyone, but there is that critical mass there where they are used to changing with the times and always keeping up with technology. And they might have their in-house teams that are experimenting with that. And that's where I think for the smaller regional rural outlet definitely that's where they're at a disadvantage in that you know you would still be looking at what tools are there that are free to use and they don't have that larger institution necessarily to rely on to help develop this having said that there is ACM Australian Community Media which does have a nationwide reach might have Canberra Times you know the small regional post as well so there is a benefit for their newspapers and online papers so if you're talking about smaller local news 
bedrooms, I would say, would be at a disadvantage in terms of financially and having the time because everything, as we know, is just, um, and with journalism, it's very much labour-intensive work if you want to actually get the stories that are using your primary sources. We've got major news organisations such as the likes of News Corp, Fairfax or Seven West Media. Are these major corporations worried about AI due to potential strikes from workers or embracing the change as it leads to cost cutting and saving money? talk about job losses in Australia, I mean, I think this has obviously been going on for a number of years and it's not necessarily because of the AI coming in on the scene. We've obviously had business models for, for a number of years now and, of course, there was the Australian News Media Bargaining Co that went through all of that and dealt with that. You know, you're right to be concerned what this is going to mean for jobs, but I would just counter that with this actually shows that now more than ever we need journalists who can actually tell what is fact from fiction because I can tell you the onslaught that we're going to have and that we are having already when it comes to misinformation is only going to get easier and cheaper for those that want to spread misinformation and disinformation. And you look at different research and then you look at the figures that are out there and the amount of content that people are going to be looking at that has been computer generated in years to come is going to be obviously the vast majority. And so that is my concerns. Well, what sort of digital information literacy do we have, the audiences have? I would like to think that this is actually going to be an opportunity. That was Dr Anne Kruger from UQ's School of Communication and Arts, ending the report by The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Yuggera countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. As always, thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire. <laughs> <laughs>